Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Hey, imagine this. Somebody involved with a major bank that did some weird and crazy stuff that uh, helped propel us into the uh, depths of the 2008 thing. Many, Several of them actually being prosecuted, maybe sent to jail. That's got to be a bad bank. In, in this case, it's Barclays Bank. A senior banker at Barclays panicked at the peak of the 2008 crisis that if the bank had been taken over by the government, you know, like they did in Iceland, his bonus would be jeopardized. That's according to a court. It, it's in court. A banker's in court. Barclays was among banks needing extra funding during the crisis. Roger Jenkins discussed with colleagues a plan to raise money privately from, uh, well, the Saudis, you see. To avoid having to accept taxpayer money, a bailout deal from the government would have meant extra disclosure of executive bonuses. We don't want them to know about that, do we? The bank actually ended up raising money from Middle Eastern investors, avoiding a government bailout. The court heard a conversation between Barclays executives on October 8, 2008, according to the BBC. That's the day the British government announced that uh, $66 billion of taxpayers' money would be made available to bail out the banks. They're being prosecuted by the Serious Fraud Office because the Comical Fraud Office is just tied up in fits of laughter. Edward Brown QC is the prosecutor, quoted from a transcript of a telephone conversation that day between Jenkins Barclays Capital Executive Richard Both and another senior banker, Jeff Weiss. The executive discussed the risk to their bonuses being disclosed, together with those of Barclays' other top executives. The court heard their pay, Roger Jenkins, $51 million in 2007, recommended for $34 million for his role in just getting the money from the Middle East to avoid losing the money. Richard Both. Paid $3.8 million in 2007, $2.5 million in 2008, and uh, similarly. In a further phone discussion the following week, October 14th, between two of them, uh, Barclays Chief Executive John Varley was described as being scared to death of government intervention, and Bob Diamond was paranoid and afraid of losing his job. So Jenkins told a colleague in July of that year he was going to visit Sheikh Hamad, Prime Minister of Qatar, to eat humble pie or humble pie. The fraud trial is in its second week. Imagine that. It's the first criminal trial of senior British banking executives in the wake of the financial crisis. Of course, there have been so many trials of senior American banking. You can't keep... No, there haven't been. And though I'm no psychic, I feel pretty secure in saying there won't be any. Hello, welcome to the show.
have a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. There'll be no sadness or danger to that bright land. That she'd meet me when I come. Well, I'm just going over Jordan. I'm just going over From London, England, home of Big Ben, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you. You've heard of him. He's uh, he's being fixed. I think, did they fix him yet? I'll find out later. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think of that? Yes, I will. Enough said. Me too. A proposed European Union ban on deliberately adding microplastics to products like cosmetics, detergents, and agricultural fertilizers is expected to cost the cosmetics industry upwards of 
9.2 billion dollars. How is Goop gonna? No, not Goop. I don't think they do that. Leaving the sector the potential regulation's biggest loser, according to a proposal published by the European Chemicals Agency on Wednesday of this week. This is reported by thebusinessoffashion.com. Europe is the world's largest cosmetics market. Did you know that? Probably the French count for most of that. I'm not going to indulge in <laughs> the obvious follow-up comments. But Europe has been particularly focused on the issue amid growing awareness of the volume of tiny plastic particles making the way into the world's waterways. The EU has made restricting their intentional use in products part of its strategy. The ECHA estimates microplastics added to products result in close to 36,000 tons of plastic getting released into the environment every year. A ban would force the industry to find new recipes for more than 24,000 formulas or formulae with no readily available alternative, except looking like bleh. The U.K. has already banned the use of controversial solid plastic microbeads in exfoliating products. The cosmetics industry, anticipating further restrictions, has already made strides to phase out microbeads across European markets. The rest of the world, eh. The new ban proposed by the ECHA goes further and will apply to other forms of microplastic that are still added to a wide variety of beauty products including, and other products, including fertilizers. Well, you know, you could rub some, no, detergents and paints. But while the tiny plastic particles are most commonly used in the agricultural sector, removing and replacing them in beauty products is expected to incur by far the highest costs. The project is still subject to further assessment. It will be sent to the European Commission for decision-making in early 2020. And, you know, nobody votes for them. That's the democratic deficit that uh, is the European Union as we speak. A new study offers evidence that microplastics may be infiltrating our groundwater supply. Illinois-based researchers found microplastics in springs and wells. Remember them? Famous comedy duo. Uh, Springs and wells from two aquifers in Illinois. Latest study published in the journal Groundwater. I read it for the water. Claims to be the first to find microplastics in fractured limestone aquifers, which make up about a quarter of the drinking water supply worldwide. Because of the geology, these aquifers are highly porous, so they can easily absorb water from the surface and all that comes with it. All that we've packed into it with our work. The team of researchers from the Illinois Sustainable Technology Center and Loyola University, Chicago, collected 11 groundwater samples from an aquifer near St. Louis, six more from an aquifer in Illinois. Only one sample came back free of microplastics. The researchers speculate the tiny plastic fibers they found are coming from household septic tanks, maybe carrying runoff from laundry loads. Tom? Laundry loads. That's it. Clothes have previously been identified as a key source of microplastic pollution. Each wash potentially releases hundreds of thousands of tiny plastic fibers. They're cute. In this latest study, the highest concentration of plastics found in a sample was around 15 per liter. Not enough data on microplastics in groundwater exists for scientists to say whether this is a lot. Well, we could say that. It's a lot. Plus, we still don't know much about the impacts of microplastics on our bodies. So let's keep fooling around. What do you say? We're... We're guinea pigs in the largest experiment ever carried on by anybody, on anybody. 
The research on this topic is at a very early stage, so I'm not convinced we have a frame of reference to state expectations or bounds on what is considered high or low levels, said a co-author of the study. Our questions are still basic. How much is there and where is it coming from? They also found medicine and household contaminants in the water, supporting the idea that the particles all originated in household septic systems. Medicine, ladies and gentlemen. You're, you're drinking somebody else's medicine. Skull, cheers. A new study shows that microplastics are affecting the ability of muscles to attach themselves to their surroundings, potentially having a devastating effect on ocean ecosystems, as well as a worldwide industry worth almost as much as the beauty industry, 3 to $4 billion a year. The new research published in Environmental Pollution found that blue muscles exposed to doses of non-biodegradable microplastics over a period of 52 days produced significantly fewer bissel threads. Those are thin fibers that help the muscles attach themselves to rocks and ropes. That enables the muscles to survive waves and strong tides and stay attached to their surroundings. These bissel threads also enable them to form extensive reefs, and those provide important habitats for other marine animals and plants. Biota! Don't you know? study also found the overall tenacity or attachment strength of muscles exposed to microplastics fell by 50% compared to a control sample of unexposed muscles. The researchers also went a little deeper, measured the proteins within the muscle's circulatory fluid, which performs a similar function to blood, except you won't see it in a Quentin Tarantino movie or in a... Far, or in a uh, Coen Brothers movie, you won't see muscle circulatory fluid. Hemolymph. Hemolymph. One of the researchers said tenacity is vital for muscles. Oh, the, uh, that study showed that microplastics induced a strong immune response and affected the muscle's metabolism. Tenacity, says the researchers, what vital for muscles to form and maintain reefs without being dislodged by hydrodynamic forces. Our research also shows that even biodegradable microplastics can affect the health of muscles. On the other hand, a new study of muscles. It's Muscle Week here on the show. A new study of muscles shows the bivalves can spit out most microplastic fibers they come in contact with. If placed in plastic-free water, they're eventually able to excrete most of the plastics they ingest. Don't be eating when you watch that. A study conducted by scientists at the Shaw Institute and the Bigelow Library or Laboratory of Ocean Sciences, both in Maine, spells possible good news for the numerous oysters along South Carolina's coast where an increasing backlash against marine plastic pollution has led to a spate of single-use plastic bans. But more research will be needed to determine how fast oysters might be able to expel the plastics fibers. We know the oysters are capable of doing it. We don't know how fast they do it, and that's a very important dis- difference, said one of the researchers. Once you have a rate, you can model that. Muscles only ingest about 10% of the fibers they come in contact with, avoiding the, most of them by spitting them out in mucus-covered... <laughs> the word of the week, ladies and gentlemen, pseudofeces, similar to a cat coughing up a hairball. Not quite as cute, I'm going to guess. Microplastics have been found in the guts. Boy, don't be eaten when you're listening to this show. The guts of every marine mammal examined in a new study of animals washed up on Britain's shores. 
So much is washed up on Britain's shores, including some ex-American comedians. Researchers from the University of Exeter and Plymouth Marine Laboratory examined, examined 50 animals from 10 species of dolphin, seal, and whale and found microplastics in all of them. Most of them were synthetic fibers, which can come from clothes, fishing nets, and toothbrushes. The rest were fragments. Possible sources include food packaging and plastic bottles. You know, we don't use enough packaging on the stuff we buy. Have you noticed that, especially when it's shipped online? Some, something comes in like a great big box, and it's, then it's wrapped in a smaller box and a smaller box. It's like a Russian nesting box. And then when you get to the thing, it's like the size of a dongle. Don't be eating when I say dongle. It's shocking but not surprising that every animal had ingested microplastics, said the lead author of the survey. The number of particles in each animal was relatively low, 5.5 per animal, suggesting they eventually pass through the digestive system or are regurgitated. I'm serious. Put the food away right now. We don't know yet what effects the microplastics or the chemicals on and in them might have on marine mammals, the researcher concluded. And just in time, too. Just one word, ladies and gentlemen, microplastics. And now, wash your ears out with this. News of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Elton John, Elizabeth Hurley, and Heather Mills have come to an agreement over their uh, somewhat distant in time now charges of phone hacking claims against two Nice Corp-owned newspapers, The Sun, hey, I was in The Sun this week, and the now-defunct News of the World, two British tabloids. Their lawyers confirmed the settlement against News Group, I'm sorry, Nice Group newspapers, just days, how about a nutty coincidence, just days before the trial was to start in London. Sir Elton and his husband, David Furnish, actress and model Hurley, model and uh, Sir, Paul, Paul, uh, Sir Paul McCartney's ex-wife, Heather Mills, and her sister, Fiona Mills, had agreed to terms with News Group. They didn't agree what the, didn't reveal what the terms were or how much the celebrities had been awarded. News Group has repeatedly said it makes no admission of liability for The Sun. Hey, I was in The Sun. Hurley and the Mills sisters claimed their voicemails had been intercepted and unlawful information gathered at The Sun and the News of the World. Sir Elton and his film producer and director husband's claim was for misuse of private information by the two papers. Had the trial gone to court, Nice Group would have had to answer questions about allegations that those activities were widespread at the Sun. You wouldn't want to do that if you were Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Now... This is your brain on the war on drugs. Taken. Any questions? Yeah, I, I, no, I have some answers. Taken is a statewide journalism project in um, South Carolina with an exclusive database and in-depth reporting. It has looked into something that goes on in every state. I think we've talked about it in this program in the, the context of California a few years ago. Civil forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture, it's called, means that um, cops can seize your stuff, your stuff, without really ever even charging you with anything, let alone convicting you of something. So Taken in South Carolina is the first time a comprehensive investigation into civil asset forfeiture has been done 
for an entire U.S. state. The team scoured more than 3,200 cases, spoke to dozens of targeted citizens, plus more than 50 experts and officials, and talking to every law enforcement agency in South Carolina. That yielded a clear picture of what's happening. Hey, what's happening? Police are systematically seizing cash and property, many times from people who aren't guilty of a crime, netting in the process millions of dollars each year. South Carolina law enforcement profits from this tactic. The bulk of the money ends up in the possession of law enforcement agencies. It's kind of a system. The intent is to give law enforcement a tool to use against nefarious organizations by grabbing the fruits of their illegal deeds and using the proceeds to fight more crime. Officers gather in places like Spartanburg County, South Carolina, for contests with trophies to see who can make the largest or most seizures during highway blitzes. They earn hats, mementos, and free dinners. Agencies that participate take home a cut of the proceeds. Over three years, law enforcement agencies seized more than $17 million. We've heard so many awful stories, says the director of the NAACP's Washington Bureau. Having cash makes you vulnerable to an illicit practice by a police organization, she says. It's a dirty little secret. It's so consistent with the issue of how law enforcement functions. Most of the people they take money, many, money from are not drug traffickers or even users. These seizures leave thousands of citizens without their cash and belongings or reliable means to get them black, back. They target black men most, the investigation found, with crushing consequences when life savings or a small business payroll is taken. Many people never get their money back or they have to fight to have their property returned and incur high attorney's fees. Black men pay the price for this program. They represent 13% of the state's population, yet 65% of all citizens targeted for civil asset forfeiture in the state are black males. If you're white, you're twice as likely to get your money back than if you're black. Nearly one-fifth of people who had their assets seized weren't even charged with a crime. Out of more than 4,000 people hit with civil forfeiture over three years, 19% were never arrested. They may have left, left a police encounter without so much as a traffic ticket, but they also left without their cash. Roughly the same number, nearly 800 people were charged with a crime, but never convicted. This is your brain on the war on drugs. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. So sorry. Well, this is a developing story, as they say. And um, this program... Having been recorded Saturday evening, U.S. time, there may have been further developments, but as of the time this program was uh, placed in the archives, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, and yes, his middle name is Shearer, and no, there is no relation, um, has now walked back his apology for having participated in a racist photograph in the yearbook when he was in medical school at the age of 45. There was a uh, person dressed as a stereotypical African-American person in black, obviously in blackface, and next to him or her, a person wearing a Ku Klux Klan war, uh, uniform, uniform of a terrorist organization. And uh, as I say, Governor Northam on Friday apologized for his appearance in a racist, offensive costume in his yearbook. 
I'm deeply sorry for the decision I made to appear as I did in this photo and for the hurt that decision caused then and now. Most Democrats in Virginia and many national Democrats have called for him to resign, but as of Saturday night, he wasn't going to. At Friendship Elementary School, Principal Lisa Boyer, this is near York, Pennsylvania, her photo was recently sent to the York Daily Record with her posing as television personality Steve Harvey in blackface. It's catching on. She had held a team-building exercise with her school staff at the beginning of the year. No students were present since it was a staff in-service day. The principal had the staff play a game based on family feud, and she dressed up as the show's host, wearing a man's suit, a stocking to cover her hair, a fake mustache, and makeup on her face to darken her skin color. The school district's central office administration was advised of her appearance later that same day. After completing an investigation, the principal was disciplined and apologized to school staff who were present for the incident. The central administration also made clear to the principal that such conduct violated both the letter and the spirit of non-discrimination policies. I can share with you that I had a team-building exercise. I had staff members play a game. My intention was never to offend anyone. However, I understand how now how my actions could be viewed as insensitive and inappropriate. I deeply regret my decision and learned from it. Even though I did not have ill intent, my poor choice was addressed by both the administrative team and school board. I publicly apologized to staff and met with some parents as well. I plan to use this example to help students learn from my mistake. My screw-up is a teachable moment. The school superintendent's poor judgment allowed a teacher to wear blackface during an African history lesson, offending families in the community. John Huffman, superintendent of the Victory Christian School System in Sacramento, California, said last Thursday our elementary chapel speaker dressed up as a Central African native woman in order to tell the life story of missionary David Livingston in his work in Africa. Dr. Livingston, I presume. In an effort to bring authenticity to her role, she wore a typical native dress and headdress. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure she re researched that really deeply. She also used makeup to darken her skin tone on her arms, shoulders, and face. It was wrong to allow the use of makeup, no matter how innocent the intentions, as it offended some of my students and parents, says the superintendent, John Huffman. I should have anticipated that this could be offensive, and I apologize to my students and parents asking to be forgiven for hurting them. The teacher was contacted. She did not respond. Busy washing off the makeup, I'd guess. During Wednesday's Waste Management Phoenix Open Pro-Am... Arizona Cardinal quarterback, cornerback Patrick Peterson grabbed a microphone, demanding the mess music be turned down. I'm with him up to there. But he said, I just want to apologize to everybody for asking for a trade in the middle of the season. I'm here to stay, baby. He literally dropped the mic as the crowd erupted at the Waste Management Pro-Am. Two men are apologizing after forcing an older man at a 7-Eleven to take off his clothes, all while taking a Facebook Live video. Hurry up, I want that jacket. I need those pants, too. Give me those pants, yelled one of the men. They could be heard laughing and tormenting the older gentleman as he strips to his underwear in 18-degree weather. Employees say at the 7-Eleven said it happened outside the store around 4 a.m. on New Year's Eve. Manager said the victim hangs out in the area a lot, is believed to suffer from mental health issues. The two men who took the video, Charles McCoy and Heath Williams, say they take full responsibility for their actions. It was very childish. I'm sorry I'm willing to do what it takes to make up for it, said McCoy. I truly apologize, and I'm sincere about this from the bottom of my heart, added Williams. Williams said they took the video after they left a bar and were drunk. 
But when they sobered up a little later, they realized what they did. Just a couple of drunks on New Year's Eve, the morning of New Year's Eve, having some fun. Elizabeth Warren's broadly successful January came after a bruising several weeks at the end of 2018 after she released the results of a DNA test confirming distant Native American heritage. Most famously, Cherokee Nation Secretary of State Chuck Hoskin Jr. issued a scathing rebuke. Warren has been in touch with Cherokee Nation leadership, apologizing for furthering confusion over issues of tribal sovereignty and citizenship and for any harm her announcement caused, according to the Tulsa World. There's a world in Tulsa. A University of Connecticut engineering professor has apologized for questioning whether he should have to accommodate a student suffering from exam-related anxiety. Enough said. (laughs) A popular Thai music act has apologized amid a scandal set off when one of its members wore a shirt showing the swastika flag of of Nazi Germany during a performance. The incident involving a girl group occurred just two days ahead of International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Israel's embassy in Thailand posted a statement on Twitter expressing shock and dismay. The performer, 19-year-old Picheyapa Namsai Natha, blamed her own ignorance for her actions. Well, at least she didn't blame somebody else's ignorance. She delivered a tearful apology and asked for forgiveness. In a video apology made on the stage where the group usually performs, she dropped to her knees as she finished her brief statement, comforted by fellow band members. Her apology was also posted on her Instagram account. Management of the group also apologized that they had inadvertently caused dismay and distress to people affected by the historical crime against humanity. Incidents involving insensitive use of Nazi symbols occur from time to time in Thailand, according to CTV News. In Thailand, there is little awareness of the Holocaust and an inclination to use the symbols as design elements or comic props. (laughs) Oops, you tripped on a swastika. Ozzy Osbourne has postponed his entire UK and European tour due to illness, and he's apologized for that. Ozzy apologized. The president of uh, New York's struggling subway agency, the MTA, has apologized for the agency's poor service, even as he said things have begun to improve. The apology came during a state legislative hearing on budget transportation issues. Transportation budget issues, I should say. Senator James Scoofies of Orange County ripped the MTA as the dirtiest, least reliable, slowest mass transit system in the industrialized world. Be sure to take it on your next trip to New York, won't you? An insurance agent who was appointed to the University of Alaska Board of Regents is apologizing after her social media posts sparked a backlash online. Tammy Rudolph, a State Farm insurance agent in North Pole, Alaska, brr, implied on Twitter that Michelle Obama is a man and showed support for conspiracy theorists behind QAnon and Pizzagate, according to the Anchorage Daily News. She was appointed to the Board of Regents by Governor Mike Donlevy, not the basketball player I'm assuming, but who knows. I can see her from here. The Alaska legislature has yet to confirm her appointment. Randolph said she was embarrassed that people were interested in personal comments I made without thinking. I do take full responsibility for them, however. I believe I owe a sincere apology for the tone of my messages and the harsh language that was used. The language expressed was out of boldness and arrogance, as it never occurred to me that it would be seen in the context of a role such as a public figure. It's just retweeting, but it doesn't mean that I endorse it. I don't have, you know, friends on Twitter. It's not related to anything I do. It's just simple entertainment for me. I thought it was kind of off the grid. You know, it was just, you know, something to do.
she uh, got off of Twitter on the University of Alaska Board of Regents. It was just something to do. And Tom Brokaw was criticized for saying on Meet the Press last week that Hispanic Americans should work harder at assimilation. He told Meet the Press he'd been arguing for some time that Latinos in the U.S. should be ensuring their children speak English. He uh, shared the views of some Republican voters whom he had said had told him, well, I don't know whether I want brown grandbabies. He added, I also happen to believe that the Hispanics should work harder at assimilation. That's one of the things I've been saying for a long time. Brokaw later, later posted a series of apologetic tweets. He said he was truly sorry for remarks that he acknowledged were offensive to many and praised U.S. diversity. The Apologies of the Week, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. T- Tom, yeah. d- do, you, uh, do you have any, any comment on your own apology? Uh, I do, Harry, and thanks for allowing me to elongate my apologetic remarks. No, it's fine. Assimilation has long been a topic for legitimate debate in this country. Mm-hmm. What I longed to do at that moment was not to re-litigate the past mm-hmm. and certainly not to launch a new level of uh, angry dialogue. Sorry, angry what? Dialogue. Ah, got it. So uh, what exactly were you recommending, that Hispanic immigrants learn English more quickly? I don't think it's a matter of quickly learning English. No, I didn't think so. What I was calling for was rather a less long path towards learning to live in and like the local community, Mm -hmm. the way of life that enlivens that community, leading to a a strengthening and, and lengthening, if you will, of those bonds which link us all together as lovers of liberty. Just just checking mm-hmm. those uh, those bonds do what? Link. Mm-hmm. Link us together. Right, right. Of course. Of course, I'm not saying learning a language isn't important. Of course not. Every, every letter, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Dialogue dies if one side can't articulate to or listen to the other. Of course, I'm not calling for eloquence, just a mastery of the colloquial. The colloquial. Colloquial. Ah. Ah. Okay. Tom, your apology uh, has added so much to this week's show, and uh, you just added that much more. Thank you. I was delighted to be here. And the show continues.
from London, England, this is Le Show. And now. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. President Trump is uh, considering pulling all U.S. forces out of Afghanistan. The Senate came together this week to rebuke such a plan at the instigation of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. But uh, a watchdog report released this week shows the fragility of the reconstruction effort. The U.S. government has spent at least $132 billion on Afghanistan since 2002 to stabilize the country, torn apart by four decades of war. That's according to the latest report by the Defense Department's Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, the SEGAR. They echo similarly dismal findings in past reports. That's why they sound so familiar. Despite all the many spent and lives lost there, only about half the total number of districts in Afghanistan are under the control of the government. Eight fell out of the Kabul's control since 2017. Billions have been spent to build a competent Afghan army and police force. As they stand up, we will stand down. But the Seagar report finds the Afghan security forces are at their lowest levels since 2015, when U.S. forces changed the mission's name to Resolute Support. More than 28,000 Afghan police and soldiers have been killed since then. This report is from Navy Times. At the same time, Afghanistan's institutions and rule of law remain works in progress, as they have for the nearly 20 years that boosts boots have been on the ground there. The Afghan government has not yet demonstrated sufficient motivation or action to deter future corrupt actors or convince the Afghan people that the government is serious about combating corruption, says the SIGAR. Drug trafficking remains endemic. According to the report, U.S. forces have observed senior Afghan security force leaders and civilian provincial authorities often controlling narcotics trafficking networks. The latest report also points to findings last year that showed the U.S. government overestimated its ability to build and reform governmental institutions in Afghanistan. The stabilization strategy and the programs used to achieve it were not properly tailored to the Afghan context. Successes in stabilizing Afghan districts rarely lasted longer than the physical presence of coalition troops. U.S. plans to bolster Afghanistan's air force with Black Hawk choppers, but the SIGAR notes there will likely not be enough pilots to fly all the helicopters that are delivered. Nor has the population produced enough maintenance personnel, which will limit Black Hawk operations. The uh, U.S. envoy to talks with the Taliban, Zalmay Khalilzad, who's been uh, representing the U.S. over there since on and off since uh, the original U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, uh, officials connected with his operation signaled hope regarding the latest peace talks with the Taliban, where they uh, seem, uh, claim to have reached a framework for an agreement. That's, that's the, how it sounds to the Inspector General and Navy Times. How does it sound over there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, watch for our move into podcasting as soon as we've mastered radio. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul, the city that makes its own gravy, I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Habib. We are Ham and Mam, the no longer corrupt brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the newest edition 
of Karzai Tok. Well, my dear younger brother, mm. it's a new year, except for our Chinese brothers. Yes. And maybe something new for our beleaguered nation. Uh, from your mouth to our engineer's ear, my younger brother. <laughs> we have had in this country a monarchy, a shaky democracy, mm. two dozen kinds of dictatorship, and me. Well, we could always try honesty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tried it. The Americans made me try it. It almost got me killed. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> when the warlords like honesty, we'll have some of that. Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Uh, hello, this is Alme, a long-time behind-the-scenes peace negotiator, first-time caller. Zalme, I remember you when you worked for the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. How's that Celica I sold you? Oh, I sold it. It's now a police car here in uh, Kabul. A police car? Yes. That thing couldn't go faster than 40 when it was brand new. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they're chasing very poor crooks. <laughs> <laughs> or very slow ones. <laughs> uh, so, Zalme, yes. you have been talking to our Taliban friends, mm-hmm. and you've reached uh, some kind of turning point. Uh, well, I would more accurately say that we've reached a way station on the road to a turning point. Mm, maybe even a rest stop on the road to the way station. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think we're closer to making progress than we have been in some time. This is what I don't understand, Salme. The Taliban control more and more territory. Mm-hmm. President Trump has said he wants to take the American troops home. Mm-hmm. Why would the Taliban want to make nice now? Oh, they're not making nice. As a matter of fact, they go out of their way to spill their tea on our papers every time we get together. <laughs> we assess that it's their way of saying that they won't be pushovers. Maybe it's just their way of saying they don't like tea. (laughs) (laughs) So you have an agreement of some sort? Uh, We have agreed on a draft which uh, could lead to a framework, uh, and that in turn, uh, with goodwill from their side, uh, could result in an arrangement. Uh, You could at least see an agreement from there. Hmm. That sounds like it could take longer than paying off the loan on one of my Toyotas. <laughs> well, I'm out from under mine. Oh, sure. He gave you the diplomatic discount. <laughs> well, the framework, if we can get it, uh, would uh, find the Taliban agreeing not to let IS or Al-Qaeda back into the country, mm-hmm. which we think would be a big step forward mm-hmm. in our being able to, in a sense, uh, step backwards. <laughs> Let the Afghan forces do more of the heavy lifting than they're already doing. No, that won't be easy. Really? No, they're already taking a lot of the American equipment home with them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of lifting. Thanks for the call. Uh, uh, let's take another one before the truck runs out of juice. Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Uh, hello, this is Mitch, a longtime Senate Republican leader. A first-time caller. Mitch, it's an honor to have on our program someone who talks slower than my brother thinks. (laughs) (laughs) Mitch, as I understand it, you uh, are a supporter of your president, but not of his plan to withdraw American forces from our country. Sounds a lot like your old supporter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think very highly of our president's accomplishments regarding his domestic agenda. Mm -hmm. We've lowered taxes on the hard-working Americans who've given the most to their country in the form of contributions to us, and we've unleashed the creation of a lot of new jobs, whether they be uh, blue-collar or white-collar or 
Maybe even no color. Uh, Mr. Leader, mm -hmm. what uh, no color? What kind of jobs would those be? They would be automated. Computers don't wear shirts. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, they very well could be automated. Mm. Uh, when you take the fetters off the great economic engine of the free market, there's no way of knowing who it might run over down the line. But uh, but, but you, you, you do disagree with your president's foreign policy, at least as it applies to our country? Well, I do, mm. and I'll tell you why. Mm. We have invested so much American blood and treasure in your country that it would just be a doggone shame if we stopped uh, before we got to the finish line. We've, we've never been closer than we are right now. But in fairness, you've never been farther away either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you this, Mahmoud. Mm -hmm. If the Taliban think they have more patience than we do, then I think they vastly underestimate America's ability to let its allies continue to take the brunt of the punishment, and they do that at their peril. Uh, Mr. Leader, I guess you don't have a question for us, so I'll break format and ask you one. All right. Your president doesn't usually react very well to disagreement by a member of his own team. <laughs> what did he say to you privately about your motion in the Senate? Uh, the president, as you point out, never hesitates to make his position on an issue clear for however long he may hold that position. But he also understands that my motion was in the spirit of the strong Republican tradition of John McCain and Lindsey Graham and many others, and he's perfectly willing to let us blow off some steam in this particular manner. Meaning he pays no attention to what you say. <laughs> uh, I can't tell you this. Mm. I'm reliably told by people in the White House that he certainly does pay full attention whenever I'm on television. <laughs> well, that would be good enough for me. Thanks for the call. <laughs> we had help today from our friends at the Afghanistan Lottery, reminding you... None of our numbers is lucky. Legal services for cars I talk. From the law firm of Ketchum and Nukem. I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. Join us next time we preempt a rerun of ourselves for a new edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. Now news of our friendly Adam. All right, you get the idea. It's safe, clean, too. The U.S. Department of Energy's Nuclear Security Office is developing a project to help other countries deal with nuclear waste. That's right. We're going to teach everybody in the world how to deal with nuclear waste. The information comes from two sources who spoke to Reuters, asking not to be named because they have funny names. The sources say the plan aims to keep the United States competitive against other countries that are developing their own waste technology, like Russia and France. Dove Schwartz, spokesman for the National Nuclear Security Administration, confirmed the group is thinking about how to help other countries reduce nuclear waste. He didn't give details. The uh, agency also declined a request for an interview with the leader of the effort. The unnamed sources say the technology could involve crushing, heating, or sending electric current through nuclear waste to reduce its, re reduce its size. The machinery to do so would be put in a black box sent to other countries with nuclear energy programs. It would remain owned and operated by the United States. The sources didn't name the countries to which the service would be offered. 
They also didn't say where the waste would be stored after it's run through the equipment. There's a solution right there. Put in a box and then we'll figure it out. A $110 billion increase in the estimated cleanup costs across the nation by the Department of Energy of Nuclear Programs is being blamed largely on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. A new DOE estimate increases the cost of remaining environmental cleanup at Hanford by $82 billion, bringing the total to $242 billion. That's the cost of making plutonium during um, the Cold War. When we see numbers like this, it forces us to take a hard look at what we can reasonably expect Congress to appropriate every year and where that leaves us if we don't get all the funding that's required, said the uh, Tri-City Development Council Vice President for Federal Programs. The increase is not surprising given the challenges and complexity of Hanford cleanup. We're not sure, says the local official, what appetite the administration and Congress will have to fund Hanford at the necessary levels for decades to come. The issue is Hanford's underground tanks holding 56 million gallons of radioactive waste. The uh, site, 500 square miles in size, is contaminated after producing two-thirds of the nation's Cold War plutonium program. The start of operations for the plant has been repeatedly delayed since Bechtel began constructing it in 2002. It was expected to be ready in 2011. Now they've changed the operating plan. The Department of Energy plans to start treating only low-activity radioactive waste by 2023, according to a court order. The plant's not going to be fully operational until 2036. Stick around. It was not designed to treat all 56 million gallons of tank waste. It still might need to be expanded or other ways found to treat some of the tank waste. Yeah, other ways. Like what to do with that black box. We'll find other ways. The governor of Nevada, Steve Sisolak, has railed against the same Department of Energy for what he described as unacceptable deception. The agency transported a half ton of weapons-grade plutonium to Nevada without the state's consent. I am beyond outraged by this completely unacceptable deception from the DOE, he said. The department led the state of Nevada to believe that they were engaging in good-faith negotiations with us regarding a potential shipment of weapons-grade plutonium, only to reveal that those negotiations were a sham all along. They lied to the state of Nevada, misled a federal court, and jeopardized the safety of Nevada's families and environment. He didn't know how the plutonium was transported or the route it took. They provided us with no information, he said. He said he would look into several options for the plutonium. I suggest a black box. I think the federal government might have a couple, you know, just for testing. The International Atomic Energy Agency urged Japan to, to spend ample time in developing a decommissioning plan for Fouke and to be honest with the public about remaining uncertainties. That's right, they need to be told those things by the International Atomic Energy Agency after a visit to the plant in November. They urged the operator, TEPCO, to secure adequate space and fin- finish plants for managing highly radioactive melted fuel before starting to remove it. Finish the plans, then remove it, says IAEA. Before the commencement of the fuel debris retrieval, there should be a clear implementation plan. TEPCO should ensure that appropriate containers and storage capacity are available before starting the fuel debris removal. Again, I suggest black boxes. The report also urged the government and TEPCO to carefully consider ways to express the inherent uncertainties involved in the project and develop a credible plan for the long term. 
Well, everybody does that, right? Clean, cheap, credible. Our friend, the Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns to your radio next week at the same time. I'm I'm, I'm going to guess the same station. And it returns to your other audio device, your podcast listening thing. Whenever you, uh, whenever the feeling strikes you. Whenever you just get that yen. And it would be just like getting your yen traded for dollars if you'd agree to join with me then would you already thank you very much uh-huh tip of the show chapeau to the san diego pittsburgh chicago and hawaii desks thanks as always to pam halstead and to jenny lawson yes that jenny lawson at wwno new orleans for help with today's program the email address for the show your chance to get cars i talk t-shirts and the playlist of today's show the latter is free the one T-shirts will cost you all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from freezing London town.